Well, as you um, have heard, this is the soft launch day for our multi-site where we're trying things out in the fellowship hall with a chance to make all our mistakes before everything hits next week. So you're going to have to work with me here on one thing. At some point during the sermon, we are all just going to freeze. And you need to hold your breath and be absolutely still and let's see how long we can mess with the tech guy (laughs) before he realizes that we're messing with him, all right? Um, This is the last Sunday of our series on the Psalms, human emotion in the Psalms. And what we're doing is we're looking at various psalms to try to understand ourselves better by understanding God's word better. So this morning we come to the last of the psalms we're looking at this summer, Psalm 136, and the human emotion of gratitude. So beginning in Psalm 136, the text says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. To the sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. For his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, the king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to his servant Israel for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. God, as we come to this word of yours, we pray that you would meet with us. That you would work gratitude in us. 
that you would help us to understand this psalm and by understanding it to understand ourselves and in both of them to love you more. That you would change us in some way because we've spent time this morning with you and your word. Would you do that by the power of your spirit in the name of your son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, school starts, those of you in Fairfax County, um, last week. Those of you in Arlington County, where we live, next week. So we took the last week, we went back down to Georgia, where we lived before we moved here, and saw family, and we saw friends. And we had dinner one night at the home of some of our very dearest friends anywhere. And as we have dinner with this family, and we're hanging out, and enjoying the time, and talking, and the kids say, hey, mom, dad, can we go get him? And we remembered then that while we'd been gone for the last year and some odd, this family has added to their number. What they've added to their number is about that long little furry pound rescue named Oreo. And so Oreo came downstairs and Oreo was licking children's faces and rolling over on his back and getting petted and jumping around. And our friend Bo starts telling us the story of the day that they brought Oreo home from the pound. And he says... We go to the pound, or his wife had gone to the pound where he was at work. Get him, play with him, feed him, agree that they're going to give him a home, bring him home. They play with him some more, they feed him some more. They play with him some more, they feed him some more. They play with him some more and show him lots of love. And they finally turn him out into the backyard to do his business. Upon which point, Oreo immediately escapes and runs away. And Bo thought, ever since we have known you, The only things we have done are love you, give you a home, give you a food, give you tension. And the first thing you do is forget about all that and run away. And of course, it doesn't take more than a moment to realize that that's a pretty good picture of how we deal with God. And Psalm 136 comes to us in that and says the reason that we fail to live with gratitude is because we so easily forget. That the reason we fail to live with gratitude is because we so easily forget. And we'll look at that this morning just under two things. Our lack of gratitude, but then counterpoint to that a deep gratitude. So let's start with a lack of gratitude. Let me tell you about my prayer life. Most of my life growing up, I became a Christian in ninth grade. And honestly, sadly, way too much of my prayer life even today. Like many of you, Being mindful of God, being prayerful, is just not something that comes terribly easy to me. Just, it's not natural. I've had to learn it. And what that has meant is that for the most part in my life, when I encounter a problem or a challenge, my default is not to go to the Lord in prayer like it should be. My default is to think through it myself, or work through it myself, or reason through it myself, or find the people I know who can help me work through it, or to find the leverage... I only end up going to the Lord in prayer once I've made a bigger mess of the thing trying to fix it on my own. And often that means that my prayer life is composed way too much of, God, I got my tail in a crack on this one and I need you to get me out of trouble. I did something wrong at work or at home or at school and I'm really worried about the consequences. Would you please save me from this, God? Or, occasionally, I really want this to happen so badly, Father. Would you please... I mean, my most fervent prayers happen when I'm in a mess or when I'm in a situation where I know that I don't have control. Now, here's the amazing thing. 
the moment that God answers that prayer and gets my tail out of that crack, or the moment that the Lord gives that situation that I've been praying so much about, I'm off like a shot into the next thing, never pausing to even say, oh, thank you, Father. In fact, it's usually about four days later that I suddenly go, hmm, I never even thanked God for that. And I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. We have a remarkable ability to pray fervently for something, and the moment it happens to be further up and further in, in a way that we forget to show a gratitude to the God who gave it to us. And in a sense, this is the meta point, the overall point of Psalm 136. If you look at the psalm, it is primarily a psalm about remembering the past. It is a psalm about remembering who God is in light of what he's done. You even see it if you look at the structure of the psalm. If you look in your Bible, the psalm itself is actually a three-verse outline followed by three stanzas which expand on that outline. The only reason it's hard to see that is the outline is given in the form of three names for God. So what the text does is it starts and says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. The Lord, Yahweh. And then that verse 1 is correspondent with verses 4 through 9 where the psalmist meditates on creation. Then verse 2 names God the God of gods which corresponds to verses 10 through 16, where the psalmist meditates on God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, triumphing over the Egyptians and their gods. And then verse 3 names God the Lord of Lords, and corresponds to verses 17 to 22, where the psalmist meditates on God then giving his people triumph over their enemies after they leave Egypt. And notice suffused through all three of those things is history. This is what you call a psalm of remembrance, a psalm where Israel is brought to meditate on what God has done for them in the past so they will remember who he is. And the reason that's so important is because a lack of gratitude is formed mainly by forgetting. Because we get so focused on the immediate thing in front of us that we fail to remember the big picture of who God is and what he's done for us. When I was in seminary, for whatever reason, God called me to be one of a set of people who helped a gentleman named Frank. Now, Frank was dying of a disease called Frederick's ataxia. Now, that's a big mouthful. You'd have to Google it and look it up. It's not the same thing as Lou Gehrig's disease, as ALS, but it manifests in much the same way. What it does is it slowly paralyzes the muscles of your body from the outside in. So at first your toes stop working and then your feet and your lower legs and eventually you're in a wheelchair. And then after an amount of time your fingers stop working and then your arms and pretty soon you're in a motorized wheelchair. And then after that eventually you can't even control that and you're basically bedridden unless people help you. And this goes on for years until finally mercifully it paralyzes your heart and kills you. Now, this man, Frank, had been suffering through this far longer than he should have lived. He was at 18 years for something that should have killed him much earlier. It was really advanced, and it meant that he was dependent on us for almost everything. You regularly would have to go feed him. You regularly would have to go care for him. He couldn't get from bed to wheelchair or wheelchair to bed, so you had to heft him. And he was a former heavyweight wrestler, so it was not a pleasant experience. He regularly 
would end up in situations where you had to go find him because he would be dropped somewhere by the equivalent of Metro and unable to get home because it had shut and you'd receive a call at midnight which said, I need you to come get me. You would regularly receive a call at midnight which says, I've soiled myself and you need to come over and clean me up. It's a horrible way to die. For whatever reason, the Lord had called some of us to help him. And my emotions, when I think back on that, have very little to do with the sadness of the situation, though it was horribly sad. They have very little to do with the exhaustion of the situation, though it was exhausting. They have everything to do with the guilt trips that he would lay on all of us. Because he would be, and you can understand why this was survival to him, so focused on what he needed that day that the moment you didn't do things the way he wanted you to do them, he would say, you never help me and care for me. And you'd think, are you joking? I get up in the middle of the night to clean up your you-know-what. I come get you all sorts of places. I spend my money on you. What do you mean I never help you? If you were at the church retreat last week, Dr. Cofield, who was our speaker, told a very similar story where he took his son on a cruise, a three-day cruise, just dad and son. The entire cruise was just about his son. Until on the third day, his son got angry at him for something and said, you never do anything for me. Jim thought, we've been on a cruise for three days. And you doubtless have experienced a version of this, whether it's with a child or an aging parent or a friend or a roommate or a family member or someone at work. And if we've all experience something like this, doesn't that make you suspicious that the issue is that we all have a problem remembering gratitude? It's probably not just a couple bad apples who are running around spoiling the whole bunch. It's because it's so easy to be self-focused. And it's so easy to focus on the problem right in front of us. In the end, a lack of gratitude is ultimately a loss of perspective. Not being able to see what God has done and who he is. But there's a counterpoint, and there's a counterpoint in this passage. The antithesis is a deep gratitude. Now, I might try to explain it this way. Like many families who are parenting children, with Callie and Evie, who are sitting there, we have to do this. What do you say? Thank you. What do you say? Thank you. What do you say? Thank you. And it's a genuine thank you. But every once in a while will do something, sometimes we don't even realize it in advance, that creates a deep gratitude. And so say, Callie will look at us and just go quietly, thank you, Mommy. Thank you, Daddy. And you realize that there's been something that's touched her heart in a deep way. The psalmist here outlines three such things for Israel that create a deep gratitude. You can actually see it most easily if you strip out the chorus for a minute. If you strip out the chorus, you then realize that the three main stanzas of this psalm are reciting the main things of Israel's history in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So the psalmist starts with verses 4 to 9 with creation, what you get in Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible. To him alone who does great wonders, who by his understanding made the heavens... Who spread out the earth upon the waters. Who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night. The psalmist says, we remember that God is the one who created us. That without him we wouldn't even be. 
And then second, the psalmist moves on to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and talks about God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt when they could not save themselves. He says, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, what we call the Passover, and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand in his outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, to him who led his people through the desert. So the psalmist meditates on God redeeming and delivering his people from slavery. And then third, he moves on to the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy to God giving his people triumph over their enemies after he's brought them out of, Is- out of Egypt. He says in verse 17 to 22, Him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sion the king of the Amorites, Og king of Bashan, and gave us their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his servant Israel. So Israel itself could look back on these three great things, that God had created them, that God had redeemed them, and that God had given them triumph. And all three of these are suffused with the chorus that the psalmist says, for his steadfast love endures forever. And those are the same three things that can drive gratitude into our own lives. When we realize they're not just true of Israel, they're true of us. We look at creation, whether you look at the stars of the sky, whether you look at a great ocean or mountain range, whether you look at the fact that your body is made with amazing intricacy. And we are able to say, God's creation, his steadfast love endures forever. We look at redemption, and we look at a redemption greater than even the psalmist could look at. The psalmist said God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, but they were still slaves to sin. They still had to have their sins covered by the Old Testament sacrificial law. We look at Christ who redeemed us with the cross from sin itself, who canceled its penalty, who took away its guilt and took away its shame. And we're able to look and say, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then we look in triumph. God had led Israel to triumph over their enemies. And we realize that God has given us an empty tomb where Christ triumphed over death. And we realize that in doing that, he has given us the ability to triumph over sin. Not fully until he comes back, but that we really can grow in Christ and we really can leave aside sins. And then he's given us a thousand other little triumphs in the lives we live. And so we can look to these same three things and then we need to bring the chorus back in. For his steadfast love endures forever. It's got to be the most important part of the psalm because it gets said in every verse. And this phrase, steadfast love, is one of the most pregnant words in the entire biblical lexicon. The phrase steadfast love is a translation of the Hebrew word chesed. It's such an important word in the theology of the Bible, there's not a single English word that can begin to convey what it means. Yes, it means steadfast love, but it also means goodness. It means kindness. It means peace. It means graciousness. It means loving kindness. And it means grace. If you look through every use of this word in the Bible, you find out two things about it. First, it's always used in the context of a greater and a lesser. Of a greater one blessing a lesser one. This is why it's so often used of God for his people because it's the greatest of all blessing us who are so often the least of all. And second, you learn that it's never used in a context of obligation. It's never the case where the greater must bless the lesser. 
whether a moral obligation, a legal obligation, an economic obligation, it's always a case where the greater blesses the lesser just because he wants to. This is why it's so often translated loving kindness. Because it is not of obligation, it's merely out of love. And we realize that's the Lord with us. He didn't create us because he owed it to us. He didn't save us from sin because he owed it to us. We deserve nothing. And he doesn't give us triumphs because he owes us anything. He does it just because he loves us. Just because of grace. And if we can focus on that, suddenly it pushes a deep gratitude into our hearts of a type we don't even know. But again, we forget. How do we focus? How do we let that gratitude flow in? How do we keep these things before us? Well, what we do in short is we do the exact same thing the psalmist is doing. Notice that there are four verses left. And in verse 23, for the first time in the entire psalm, the psalmist does something different. He says, us. Because the entire psalm has been about back then, through verse 22. And now the psalmist says, this same God is our God. The God who did all that stuff for Israel in our history, he says, is still the God that we have today. And you and I take the exact same step. We say the God who did all of that for Israel is the God who does all of that for you and me. We work the psalm with the psalmist. Because just like Israel could look at their creation, their redemption, and their triumph and say there's a gratitude to be had, so can we. But here's the challenge of it for so many of us. We live between redemption and triumph. We live in a time where Christ has decisively conquered sin and risen from the grave, but where we are waiting for him to come back in the fullness of time. And because we live between redemption and triumph, there are pieces of our past that are not pieces that you would call good. Many of us look at pieces of our past and quite objectively would be able to say that was wrong. That was bad. This was true for Israel reading this psalm. After the period that this psalm talks about, they were conquered by world empire after world empire. They were ground into dust by people who cared nothing for their God or their faith. This is true of us in our lives today. One of my friends um, gave me a voicemail a couple days ago. He lives up north in, in the Boston area. He lost his mom about a month ago. Now, most hospice programs are incredibly great programs, but hers was horrid. So a month later, he still hasn't been able to bury his mother because he has no death certificate. While he's trying to deal with her estate and figure out what to do, and it's all blowing his mind up, there was a flood in her house. Turned out the insurance that they had wasn't what they thought it was. And, 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 and. And he said on his voicemail to me, he said, I've talked to my priest a bunch of times, but I've never felt further from God than I feel right now. How could, how could God, who is who you say he is, let this happen? And you can understand where he's coming from, right? The truth is, because we live between redemption and triumph, our triumph is never complete until Christ comes back. So what do we hang on to now? Well, even then, we can hang on to creation and redemption. The God who made us and made this world is still the one who flung stars into space with merely his voice. The God who made us and made this world is the one who has redeemed us. Christ who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. 
And for that reason, we can get up as hard as it is, even out of our troubles, and realize that there's still a loss of perspective. Because there are many triumphs that are still there. And there are many things that are still true, ways the Lord has taken care of us. So how do we do this? We put the psalm back into our lives and we work it together. We pray the psalm with the psalmist. Here's how. Pull out a pen, pull out a pencil, take the front of your worship guide, and do a little brainstorming with me. Let's talk about the three categories. Think about creation. What are the things in creation that just make you marvel at the Lord? Is it the stars of the sky? Is it the vastness of the ocean? Is it the mountains that are before you? Is it your body that somehow keeps breathing even when there's no reason you'd think this should have happened? What are the things of creation? Then move on to redemption. The work of Christ on the cross, him dying for our sins. The removal of guilt, the removal of shame. Christ conquering death. The sins from which you have been forgiven. The shames which still well up on you that you're able to say Christ has taken them away. And then the triumphs. Christ's triumph over death with the empty tomb. The triumphs over sin where we're able to put things away. Even the triumphs in our lives, in work, on the sports field, in school. Now look at your list. And after every one of them, you pray that and then you say, for his steadfast love endures forever. We pray the psalm with the psalmist. Take it home. See if you can make each of those lists 20. And let's all pray our list this week, every one of them reminding ourselves, it's his grace, his steadfast love endures forever. Let's do it for a week together and see what happens to our gratitude. Let's pray. God, our Father, we are quite willing to confess and admit that we are not usually a people who live full of gratitude because we're a people who so easily forget and get distracted. But we know that while we so often forget you, you never forget us. And so we come to you in prayer, praying you'd meet with us and be with us, even as we take this sacrament together. And so we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, writing in the book of Corinthians about the Lord's Supper, the meal that we're going to take together, says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul says, quoting Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering is what creates gratitude. And we have in this meal, of the many lenses we could put on it, a way for us to remember. To remember what Christ has done for us. To remember that he truly and literally lived, truly and literally died on a cross, was buried, and the third day bodily rose from the tomb in a stubbornly historical sense. If you believe that, and if you have put your faith in him and him alone for forgiveness of sins, 
And if you've expressed that by being baptized into a Bible-believing church that teaches these things, this table is for you. And we would tell you, please come. Meet with the Lord in it. Remember him. On the other hand, if that's not you, then we would tell you because the Bible itself says, please do not come. When the tray passes down the pew, please let it pass by. There's no harm in that. There's no shame in that. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say it's a terrible thing to take something so fraught with spiritual significance and ignore its significance. Instead, we would ask you, let it pass by, but pray on these things. That what we remember is Jesus really died for you and for me. And there is hope and salvation in nothing else. And we pray so much so that you would come to realize these things and the next time we take this, you could do it with us. Let's pray together again. Lord Jesus Christ, we do remember that this is your meal. We do remember that it represents to us that you died for us and that you rose again. And we know that you have promised, though the bread is still bread, and though the juice is still juice, not changed in any way, that it is true that you meet with your people specially as we take the sacrament together. So do meet with us as we celebrate what you have done for us and as we remember, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.